Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. I was gonna, I was gonna get up this morning and, uh, and I was gonna pick the dobro and the mandolin and the banjo and play the fiddle for a little bit and sing, sing six, seven songs, but I figured y'all sick of that. Amen. So, I'm not going, I'm not going to labor you with it. All right. We'll just get up and do a little preaching this morning. Genesis chapter number 21. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number one. Genesis chapter 21, verse Number one, the word of God says, and the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. We could pause and just preach right there, couldn't we? He does what he says. Amen. He does what he says he's going to do. He did as he said. He visited as he said, and he did as he had spoken. Amen. That, that ought to be enough. Amen. For everything we face in life, that ought to be enough to know he just does what he says. Amen. We can trust him. Amen. A lot of folks don't do what they say, but he does what he says. It says, For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was an hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh, so that all that hear will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? For I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. The thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad, and because of thy bondwoman. And all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation, because he is thy seed. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Thank you for letting us be in your house today. I pray that you'd speak to hearts. Lord, the task before me is beyond me. But Lord, I know that nothing's beyond you. The word of God is not bound. It's powerful. It's quick. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it can pierce to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. We just ask that that work would be done today, God. What we're asking is for you to do the work that you always do and that only you can do. We're taking our hands off of it, putting it in your hands. So I pray that you would work on hearts, deal with all of us, Lord, this morning. If there's any that are lost and undone, show them that greatest of need that they have of Calvary. And I pray they'd be saved before it's everlasting too late. Lord, we love you and thank you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you can remember two weeks ago. I generally cannot, but I keep a record of the things that I preach. And a couple of weeks ago, we preached on Abraham and Isaac. We preached of uh, the next chapter, how that Abraham takes his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah and offers him there on the altar to the Lord. And we preached on this thought, is your Isaac on the altar? We talked about the significance of Isaac to Abraham. And you really couldn't imagine anything in the life of Abraham other than maybe the Lord that would be more significant to Abraham than his son Isaac. We talked about how that Isaac represented the things that are precious in our life. The Bible says that Isaac is his uh, only son and it says, uh, Whom thou lovest, Isaac. In other words, uh, Abraham had a great heart, a great affection, a great love for Isaac. Can I tell you the best way to keep the things that are precious to you is to give them to the Lord. Uh, do you remember when you was a little child and maybe you had a toy, you was walking around playing with your friends, going into a department store or something, and you was playing with that toy and your parent looked down at you and they knew, they knew that you would forget that toy, that you'd lose that toy, you'd misplace it somewhere. And probably your mama said to you, now, now son, give that to mama, let me hold on to it so you don't lose it. Can I tell you, God does the same thing with the things that we value in our life. He says, son, just hand it up to daddy so that you don't lose it. If you have it, you'll lose it. Let me have it for safekeeping. And in the right time and the right way, I'll give it right back to you. Man, I love the fact that the Lord can be trusted with the things that are precious. 
Then we talked about how that Isaac represented the things that are planned. The Bible calls him Abraham's only son. Now, of course, Abraham did have another son in the flesh, and that was Ishmael. But Isaac was the one in whom all of the plan of God had been vested. All of Abraham's plans for his future and all of his hopes for his future were all vested in Isaac. He was the son of promise. And so he represented everything that Abraham had planned. Can I tell you, you can trust God with the plans in your life. You can trust that God has a better plan than you do or I do. I'm glad for that. Half the time I don't have a plan. Somebody say amen. But I'm thankful that God always has a plan. And I'm thankful that I can trust Him with my plan. When I have something planned, I can surrender it to the Lord. And if He changes anything, it's because it needed to be changed. If He does anything different, it's because it needed to be done different. He's a God that we can trust with our plans. And then I would say this, Isaac represented the promises of God. Uh, God had made this promise to Abraham that he would give him a son and that in that son a mighty nation would be born, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed by the nation that would rise up from Isaac's lineage. And now God tells him, I want you to take that son, put him on an altar, and slay him. What a confusing thing that is. You know, sometimes it's going to look like the promises of God have failed you. I wish I could tell you, hey, listen, the charismatic preacher would tell you there ain't never going to be no days like that. But the Bible preacher will tell you there's going to be days that it's going to look like the promises of God have failed you. Uh, this is a whole other sermon that I don't have time to preach, but we could talk about Elijah going uh, to the widow woman there in Zarephath. And God had promised Elijah that he would provide for him, watch over him, and he sends him first by the brook Cherith. And there he sits, and the ravens are bringing him meat by day, and he's drinking of the brook uh, by night. And the Bible tells us, though, that the brook dried up. Hey, it looked like God's promises had failed. Uh, he goes and meets this widow woman of Zarephath. He don't know that she's broke. He don't know that she ain't got nothing uh, but uh, two sticks that she just picked up to rub together and make a fire and make a last meal. He rolls up and he sees this little woman out there gathering sticks and he God pricks his heart and, and shows his heart. That's the person that you're going to lean on? Hey, it looked like God's promise had failed. He, he shows up and the person that is supposed to feed him can't even feed herself. It looked like God's promises had failed. You know how that God performed the miracle. They're provided for that family and provided for Elijah. Then a day comes along and that son dies and the widow woman turns and, and, and with, with bitterness and with hurt and confusion, she asked if Elijah was sent just to call her sins to remembrance. If he was just a harbinger of the judgment of God, it looked like the promises of God had failed. But you know, you just keep looking and you'll find out God always keeps His promises. But he had to trust God, Abraham did, to keep his promises. Now, we've backed up a little bit and looked at verse number 21. In verse number, in, cha or in chapter 21, in chapter 22, we find Abraham taking his precious son Isaac and committing him to the arms of the Lord and trusting God with him. But did you know in chapter number 21 that we find Abraham doing the exact same thing, although it looks a little bit different? Uh, we find him committing Ishmael his firstborn, Ishmael, his son by Sarah's handmaid, Hagar, to the Lord, trusting God with his future and delivering this child over to the providence of God and trusting the Lord with him. I think if we're going to understand the significance of this comparison, you say, preacher, is there a difference between putting your Isaac on the altar and putting your Ishmael on the altar? Well, I'm glad you asked that. In fact, I asked it for you. That's how glad I am. To understand the significance of this passage, we've got to first consider the circumstances of Ishmael's birth. Just as you won't understand what was going on on Moriah until you understand how that Isaac was born, you won't understand what's happening in chapter number 21 until you understand how Ishmael got there in the first place. Turn back to chapter 16. I want to read four verses for you. And I want us to notice some things, think about them, and then we're going to do a little preaching this morning. Back in chapter 16, we have the story of how Ishmael was conceived and born. The Bible says, verse number 1, now Sarai, and I'm going to say Sarah because it's easier to say, but her name was Sarai, and I'm going to say Abraham probably because I'm used to doing it, but it's Abram at this time. It says, now Sarah, Abraham's wife, bare him no children, and she had in handmaid an Egyptian whose name was Hagar. Sarah said unto Abraham, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarah. And Sarah, Abram's wife, 
took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. He went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. Now, the glorious and glowing and encouraging circumstances of the conception and birth of Isaac are, 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 are uh, given in stark contrast to the dire uh, and to the disappointing circumstances of Ishmael's birth. In fact, when we look at Ishmael, if, if Isaac is a product of Abraham trusting God, it would not be inappropriate to say that Ishmael is a product of him doubting God. When we look at what Ishmael represents in the life of Abraham, I would say there's three things. In Isaac, we see the, the, the things that are precious and the things that are planned and the things that are promised. But what was Ishmael to Abraham's life? Well, I'd say, number one, that he was the product of Abraham's faithlessness. He was the product of Abraham being unwilling to trust the Lord. God had given this promise already that God would, through Sarah, give him a son. But you know, sometimes it's hard to wait on the Lord. And Abram, not because he desires Hagar, not because he, he lusts after Hagar, but because he desires to accomplish God's plan through his own means, much like Moses of old, he desired to accomplish God's plans through his own means. Here's what he does. He takes it into his own hands. He says, Lord, I can't trust you with this anymore. I'm going to have to do it. And so rather than waiting on God and letting God accomplish it and doing it in God's way and in God's timing, he says, I'm done with that. I'm impatient. We're just going to accomplish this ourselves. It was a time in his life when he didn't trust the Lord. Hey, any of you got some scars and some bad memories and some guilt and regret over some times you didn't trust the Lord? Any of you still find it a battle day by day to trust the Lord with matters? I'd say the hardest thing to our nature is to trust God. It is the most polar opposite of what our nature wants to do. We want to take it into our hands and do it our way, but instead we need to leave it in the Lord's hands. He was a product of Abraham's faithlessness. But then I would say number two, he is a reminder and a product of Abraham's failure. Because listen carefully, faithlessness always provides failure. Uh, even if faithlessness provides something that the world would call success, in the eyes of God, it is failure. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If we do it through our own means and our own ability, if we do it without trusting God, it doesn't matter how what it produces, what it looks like. Hey, it doesn't matter how it glitters and golds and shines. Uh, it is uh, uh, failure in the eyes of God. And so for Abraham, Ishmael was a, a time of his failure with the Lord. Abraham had spent long years trusting God. But then for this glimpse of, glimpse of time, he does not trust the Lord. And it is one of the greatest stains upon the testimony and life of Abraham. In fact, I would say that as we look at Abraham's life, there's two or three things. We'd probably point to his slow obedience to the command of God at the beginning of his life. We'd certainly point to his uh, backslidden uh, journey down into Egypt uh, and him asking Sarah to lie for him. But the birth, the conception and birth of Ishmael is no doubt one of the largest stains uh, and, and smears upon the life of Abraham. It represented his failure. Any of us walking around with some failures, we wish we could just get rid of. He's a product of Abraham's faithlessness and his failure, but then I would say this, he is the product of Abraham's flesh. There's a reason the Bible does this interesting thing, and you see it even in our text this morning, where that uh, the Bible speaks of Isaac as being the son of uh, Abraham and speaks of Ishmael almost as a non-entity, and yet in our text it does say indeed that Ishmael is the son of Abraham. You say, preacher, why is that? Because when the flesh looked at the situation, Ishmael was the firstborn. When the spirit looked at the situation, Isaac was the only son. You see, as far as God was concerned, a child that was conceived, not through his doing, but through the energies of their flesh in this circumstance, a child that was conceived that way was a non-entity. He wasn't a part of the plan of God. He wasn't a part of what God desired and designed to do. Now somebody said, well, preacher, that's cruel. Well, it wasn't God that birthed Ishmael. It was Abraham that birthed Ishmael. Uh, hey, it was, it was Abraham's flesh, his faithlessness, his unwillingness to trust God. He was the one that produced this situation. And I say the things that hurt me the most in life are things of my own doing. Times when I've tried to do things my own way. When I wouldn't wait on God, I wouldn't trust God, I wouldn't let God accomplish things, and I just rushed ahead. Fools rush in, don't they? I just rushed in like a fool and did it my own way, in my own time, in my own methods and manners and processes. And you know what that is? That's the flesh. The flesh is that part of us that wants to take the reins from God and do it in our own way and in our own ability. 
And Ishmael was the product of that. Can I tell you, hey, listen, I'd give anything if I could just get rid of this old flesh. I understand that on this side of glory, we're going to battle it. I, I Listen, I, I, I've got that theological point worked out. Somebody say amen. Uh, and, and, and before I ever learned it in my Bible, I learned it in my experience that this flesh is just going to be there. We're going to have to deal with it. That part of us that defies God, that doesn't want to listen to God, that cannot be subject to the law of God. It cannot be sanitized or sanctified. It has to be mortified. It's going to be there day by day. And for Abraham, Ishmael was the reminder of those things. Now, what do we find in chapter 22? We find Abraham walking with Isaac up a hill, and as far as he's concerned, he's going to take him up there and slay him. He's going, he's committing him entirely to the Lord. What do we find in chapter 21? We find Abraham taking his son Ishmael and pushing him off into a wilderness with his mother Hagar and never to be seen again. I would say it this way. If chapter 22 is about laying your Isaac on the altar, then chapter 21 is about putting your Ishmael on the altar. I want to preach to you on that thought for a moment this morning. You know, this passage reminds us that it's not only the things that we love that we must surrender to the Lord, it's also the things that we loathe. I think we do a lot of preaching about taking those things that we value. What about those things that vex us? We talk about the things that, that, that we treasure, but what about those things that torment us? Abraham, he loved Ishmael, there's no question, but the biggest problem in his life was Ishmael. The plan of God could not march forward while Ishmael was there. And Abraham had to learn how to take that thing that he had a fleshly love and affection for, but was not a part of the plan of God. And he had to learn to give that thing to God. It's not just the things we love. It's the things we loathe. It's our blessings and our burdens. It's our gifts and our guilt. It's our sons and our sins that we have to give to the Lord. How do we do that? What does that look like? Well, I want you to notice four truths about this process in our passage from the life of Abraham. Look with me at verse number 8. Everything seemed to be going along well for a while. We don't know how long it took to wean Isaac, but you can imagine a, a year or better probably that, that there had seemed to be a happy home. And I, you know, I saw this with my kids. Hey, listen, my, my, my oldest, he absolutely loved his little brother uh, when he couldn't talk, when he couldn't walk, when he couldn't steal his toys, when he couldn't come in like Godzilla and wreck all of his Legos. <laughs> And he still loves his little brother. I mean, they're precious. They, 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 they're, they're thick as thieves, and sometimes I wonder if they don't do some thieving. And I, I, they, they love each other, but things got more tense when the littlest one all of a sudden could walk around. Now he can interfere and intervene, and it seems as though there was some animosity in the home of Abraham that developed. Once Isaac gets to the place that he is weaned, all of a sudden the hostility begins to show forth. And the Bible says in verse 8, the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a feast, a great feast, the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Can I say the first thing we notice from this passage is there was a direct conflict that arose between the son of promise and the son of the flesh. Now let me just go ahead and remind you who these two entities represent. Uh, we're told in the New Testament uh, that uh, that uh, Hagar and that Ishmael, they are a, a, a simile, a, a, a figure, uh, they are a picture, an allegory uh, of the law and of the flesh, of the energies of man trying to accomplish things through his own ability and not through faith in the Lord. And so Ishmael, he's a picture of that old man. Isaac's the son of promise. He's the man that is born of the Spirit, figuratively speaking, and he is a picture of that new man that is within us. And can I say this? Uh, when the new man and the old man live in the same house, sooner or later there's going to be some conflict that arises. Now you say, preacher, how would that be possible? Well, if you're born again, when you got saved, you were what the Bible says, quickened. That means you were made alive. Now you were already alive in the flesh, but you were spiritually dead. So let's think about this. That part of you that was the flesh that didn't know God, that didn't love God, he was alive and kicking and doing well. He was running the show and things were going all right. But then you went and messed up and got born again. Amen? And when you did, that new man got awakened within you and now all of a sudden there's a conflict within we find a picture of it in the uh, circumstances and birth of, of Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau, when they are within the womb. The Bible says they would wrestle and contend with one another. Some of you ladies can say amen to that. You, you, you experience that. Uh, some of you all didn't have twins, but, that, but your baby about kicked you to death. Amen. And, 
And when they were in the womb, they would wrestle and fight with each other. And Rebecca asked this question about the plan of God. She says, if it's God's plan that I have these children, if it be so, why am I thus? And can I say that believers, ever since the Holy Ghost began to indwell people uh, that got born again, have been asking the same question. If it be so that I'm saved, that I'm purchased, that I belong to the Lord, if it be so, why am I thus? Why is there this conflict within? Can I say that's not anything unusual? Well, the Bible says abundantly clearly that there's going to be a conflict within each and every believer. The Bible says it this way in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to another, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Once you notice, first off, when we talk about this conflict, this spiteful sporting that took place, it's interesting the language that's used here. It says that that he was mocking him. The same language is used, by the way, actually later on of Isaac and Rebekah. It says that whenever they were down dwelling amongst the Philistines, that the king of the Philistines looks out the window one day. He's under the impression uh, that, uh, that, that Isaac and Rebekah are brother and sister. He looks out the window. They ain't acting like brother and sister. I mean, in some parts of the country. But, that, but he, he looks out there, and, and the Bible says they were sporting. In other words, they were flirting. They were picking at each other. They were being affectionate one to another. The word is used in other places. talks about mocking, and it, and it contains the idea of ribbing, of needling, uh, of mocking. We could use this term, bullying. Bullying. You know, the flesh is always going to try to bully the spirit. He's going to try to, he's going to, try to buffet and afflict and persecute that new man. Uh, the new man can not let the old man just have dominion, but I would just point out that it's always the old man that tries to have dominion over the new man. What does the new man try to do? He don't try to suppress the old man. He tries to mortify. He tries to slay the old man. But the old man, he knows that ain't going to happen. And so here's what he does. He bullies. He needles. He mocks. Isn't it funny the way your flesh can bully you? You're trying to trust the Lord. You're trying to commit things to God. You're trying to believe the Lord. You're trying to go on and serve God. And all the way along, your flesh, like a little old dog, is coming along yapping at you, telling you you're going to fail, that there's no way that God doesn't keep His promises, that it's not going to work out, that everything's going to fall to pieces, that you're weak, that you're ineffective, that it's impossible. And all the way along, it's just sort of needling and mocking and making fun. I've taken two long road trips across the country with my kids. And can I say, I have seen my share of mocking. I grew up, I was the little brother, and us little brothers always got it hard, man. I mean, it's rough. When you're the youngest, I mean, it's just, it's rough. Can I just say, it's it's tough. You get hand-me-downs of everything, you know, and, and you don't even get any really good parenting because they just, they let you get away with everything. And it's, it's hard. It's hard being the youngest. Whew, you pray for me. And, uh, but I, I, I had my fair share, and I give as good as I got most of the time, I, I think. But that same relationship of two brothers mocking, needling, prodding, making fun of, refusing to leave it alone. You're, you're in my space. You're in my space. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. Persistent, annoying persecution. That's how we define the way the flesh interacts. And isn't that always how it is? Every day you wake up, you say, man, I'm going to serve the Lord today. And there's your flesh looking back in the mirror saying, no, you're not. You wake up, you say, no, I'm not going to let, I'm not going to let the flesh get the best of me. I'm not going to let the devil get this day. I'm going to use it for God. And there's your flesh saying, no, you won't. You're going to fail like you've done so many other times. And it just mocks. We see the spiteful sporting, but then notice what it says, verse 10. Wherefore she, Abraham, well, let's look back at verse 9. Abraham, uh, Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, which she had born unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. We see in this direct conflict the spiteful sporting, but then we see the singular solution. Sarah was probably at most times in Scripture, other than maybe Rachel, one of the most carnal uh, wives in this patriarchal system that we have any record of. And yet here she is the voice of wisdom in Abraham's life. And she says, there can be no peace in our home as long as that child is still a part of it. You know, she hit on something that we all need to understand here. There is only one solution to dealing with the flesh. Now, I wish I could tell you that we could just get rid of it. But you and I both know we cannot. But here's what we have to do. You know, in the New Testament, the Lord, Apostle Paul spoke about this in Romans chapter number 6. 
that we are to reckon ourselves dead indeed unto sin. Now that term reckon, that's not only a good southern word, it's an accounting word. It's a word that means to draw it up, to figure it as though it does not exist, or it means to figure it a certain way. But Paul says, we ought, when we do the math on our life, when we round all the numbers, when we figure everything up, the flesh should not be a number in our equation. We should recognize that it don't get a vote. It don't get a say. It doesn't get dominion. It doesn't get a place even at the table. It is a non-entity as far as we are concerned. And so what Sarah says here is similar to what we have to do. Of course, we cannot entirely exercise the flesh from our body, but what we can do is determine that it gets no dominion in our lives. We see there was a direct conflict that took place. Abraham responds in a way that I think many of us would respond. The Bible says in verse 11, and the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. I've been thinking a lot about this passage of Scripture and you know, as I said, I'm the father of two boys, and it is unfathomable to me. And I don't know that I've ever thought much about it. You know, we all think about Abraham walking up Mount Moriah and how difficult that must have been because Isaac, he's the son of promise. He's the vested focal point of the plan and promises of God. But you know what Ishmael was? He was his little boy. He was the product of his flesh. Ishmael, just as much as Isaac, fleshly speaking, was the son of Abraham. And God looks at Abraham and Sarah looks at Abraham and says that child's not going to live in this home anymore. And at that time there was no, you didn't send him to live with family and kin. You didn't send him down the road to uh, live in some halfway house. There wasn't no shelter going to take him in. As far as Abraham knew, when he pushed that uh, young lady and her son and his son out into the wilderness, he was pushing them out to die there. And Abraham seems deeply aware of that. I would say this, the decision to mortify the flesh does not come easy. Abraham is deeply, deeply conflicted about this. There is a deep crisis that takes place. We see the response. It says it was very grievous. He literally began to grieve as though Ishmael were already dead because just as walking up Moriah's hill, he reckoned Isaac to be dead. Even so, at this night, this moment, he's reckoning Ishmael to be dead. But in that, we find a beautiful truth of what we must do in order to gain victory. We, like Abraham, have to reckon in debt. I'm telling you this this morning. That's not a comfortable thing. I think we get this idea that all of Christianity ought to feel good. We do. We, we, we think if anything in our life does not feel good, it must not be of God. I think if we were to have a truly biblical perspective, and I want to be careful here not to say something that's not biblical, because God is not, God is not honored by our suffering for suffering's sake. But I would say this, a great big old heaping pile of Christianity involves things that are not comfortable to us. I would say more of Bible Christianity is outside of our comfort zone than ever lives within it. And Abraham being deeply troubled, deeply disturbed by this is not a surprising thing. Hey, listen, if you don't ever hear a sermon and it hurts you, something's wrong. If you don't ever hear a sermon and it just reach in and unzip your, your heart and, and just grab your heart and squeeze, then something's wrong. I love the glory messages, man. We enjoyed a lot of them, although we got a lot of hard preaching too this past week. But man, I enjoyed getting to just kind of walk around in the glory patch for a little while. That was wonderful. But I'll tell you this, uh, when God's doing something in your heart and life, there's going to be times that He is not just uh, elevating you, there's going to be times that He's smiting you as well. doesn't mean there's something broken. doesn't mean there's something wrong. And oftentimes it means quite the opposite, that something that is very right is taking place in our heart and life. Don't ever think there will be a day you'll wake up and mortifying the flesh will be easy. It will never happen. Often we say to ourselves, when it becomes easy, then I'll do it. I'll know the time is right. I'm going to go ahead and serve Bible notice on you this morning. The time is right to mortify the flesh. And it will never be easy to do. If you're waiting to wake up one day and feel extra super spiritual, like you can leap tall buildings in a single bound, and then you're going to mortify your flesh, I'm sorry, you'll be waiting the rest of your life. You've just got to make up your mind that today's the day, now's the time, and I'm going to serve the Lord. We see the response of Abraham, but then notice the reason for his angst. You know why it was so hard? Because of his son. Because it was his son. 
I've noticed with my children, I, and people used to say when Lawrence was little that he looked a lot like me. And we, we prayed real hard and he grew out of it. And now he looks like his mama. I was looking at a picture of him yesterday that, that, that she had taken over the past week. And, and I can see her standing. I can see her features. I, can see, I mean, he looks like his mama. Now, Schofield, on the other hand, at least so far, and we're praying for him too. He seems to resemble me quite a bit. And one of the things that makes you love your children so deeply, at least this is my experience, sadly there's people that don't grow up with, with as wonderful homes as God's blessed me with, but one of, the, one of the great blessings of watching your children grow is seeing yourself in them. It's not a narcissistic thing, but listen, no man ever hated his own flesh. And when you see that child and they do things that are wrong, but they're the things that are wrong that you would do. And so it makes sense to you. And you look at them and you can see yourself in them and you can see them in you. And it evokes this great affection within you. You're partial to your own child. You desire things for them. You wouldn't care if other kids had or did not have. And, and you have a soft spot because it's your flesh. Now let's reverse engineer that. Has it ever dawned on you that you might just be a little biased about your own self? Has it ever occurred to you that you might have a soft spot for yourself? That you have a tendency to yield to the things that you think are good, that you think are important, that you think are valuable, whether or not they're helping you or not, because they're the things that you desire, the things that you value, and the things that you want in your life. Here's what I'm trying to get, get across to you. You can't trust your own flesh. It is natural for it to be difficult to mortify the flesh. And it is natural for you to make every excuse in the world as to why your flesh is pretty good. I mean, all them other folks' kids are all a bunch of bratty monsters. My kids, that's something different. All those other people's flesh is rotten and wicked, vile. They need to mortify. But now, my flesh is all right. I mean, it's not perfect, but I got pretty good. Here's what we say, gut instinct. I've heard the word gut and stink together, but it's never been a good thing. Your gut instinct will lead you away. You know why? Because your gut instinct is not God. It is biased. It is flawed. It is failed. And it will lead you wrong more than it will lead you right. This Bible will lead you right. But your gut will always lead you wrong. Say why it was hard. Because... Abraham loved his son. I'll tell you why it's hard for you to listen to the Lord and lean towards him. Because you love your own self. Because no man ever hated his own flesh. I see there was a deep concern, a deep crisis here. But then I see verse 12. This always been an astonishing verse to me. The Bible says, God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation because he is thy seed. There's a beautiful thing, an asymmetry in the word of God that is a beautiful thing. You know, mankind was spiraled into depravity by listening to the counsel of a woman. But did you know that she is healed from her depravity by likewise listening to the counsel of the woman, the church? As she points, not pointing Adam to corrupt fruit, but pointing mankind, the other Adam, towards eternal life. There's a beautiful asymmetry in the Word of God. You go earlier in the life of Abraham and you find that it is a failure for him to listen to Sarah. Sarah counsels him wrong far more often than she counsels him right. And yet in this passage, we find that is not the case. We find that God tells Abraham, listen to Sarah, hearken unto Sarah. Now ladies, before you get too excited, can I point out a spiritual truth here? You know why he's telling Abraham this? Because it's the last thing that Abraham would be inclined to do in the first place. I want you to notice that in this passage there's a direct conflict and a deep crisis, but then we see there was divine counsel that was given. Three things are said. I got a little ahead of my notes here. Number one, I would say that this counsel was given to encourage his faith. He says in verse number 12, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. Now that's an interesting verse. I mean, it sounds like God is just sort of slapping him with platitudes. He, he does not say to Abraham, well, I'm going to this and I'm going to that. He doesn't give him some great, deep, spiritual guru answer of how to unlock the inner peace within him. He just looks at Abraham and says, Abraham, quit fretting. 
What a fascinating thing that is. You know why? Because the only solution to the flesh is faith. Every few years, somebody comes out with some book they make a million dollars off of that's going to tell you how to fix all your problems. Can I just go ahead and save you that? Hey, there's already a book that tells you how to fix all your problems. And you can find them in, in hotel, uh, you know, nightstands. You can find them in the prison house. You can go down to stores. They'll give them to you for free. And if you ain't got one, come find me. I'll get you one. Uh, God didn't write this book to make money off of it. He owns the gold on a thousand, uh, I said the gold on a thousand hills. And streets made of cows. Sometimes I feel like Barney up here. He don't need no money. He wrote it for your edification, for your blessing, for your benefit, for your good. Can I just tell you this? Hey, listen, I wish there was some shortcut, but there ain't no shortcut here. It's never going to be easy to persecute your flesh, to afflict it, to mortify it, to ignore it, to dismiss it, to reckon it dead. And the only solution is faith. He looks at Abraham and he says this, I know it's not easy, Abraham, but I need you to master your spirit and trust me because I've got this under control. What we need in those moments is not some great glorious new revelation of truth that's going to unlock all of the inner power within us. What we need is the simple Bible command and invocation to trust God. It's not going to be easy to trust Him. Your flesh will make sure of that. But that doesn't mean it's wrong to trust Him. In fact, it would be quite appropriate to say that the distrust of the flesh and the trust of the Lord are two sides of the same coin. We turn from leaning on ourselves and lean on the Lord. Hey, trust not thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct thy path. You're either going to trust you or you're going to trust Him. And when you cease to trust you and it's not easy, you say, preacher, what's the answer? To trust him. We see he gave this counsel to encourage his faith. Number two, he gave this counsel to ignore his flesh. We preached a little bit of it already, but you say, now preacher, why would Sarah, why would God tell Abraham to listen to Sarah? There's two reasons. One was because she is right. You ladies can say amen to that. She was right. Her counsel was sound here. And so God tells Abraham to listen to it. But I think that in the fact, you know, God could have used any vessel to deliver this message and he uses Sarah to do it. What is significant about that? What's significant is this. Abraham's natural inclination would be to ignore her counsel. She was biased. She was probably bitter. She was somebody that had every reason to want Ishmael gone. She had no love for him. She had no concern for him. And all of the things that are true about Abraham's life uh, and Ishmael, what he represented, were true about Sarah's life. The only difference is, uh, Sarah, it was not her son. In other words, she was a biased person. She was a bitter person. She had every reason to want him gone. And it was easy for her to say it. And yet God says, listen to her. You know why? Because here's what Abraham's flesh was going to say to him. Don't listen to Sarah. She's just bitter. Don't listen to Sarah. She, she just, she don't love him. Not her son. Don't listen to Sarah. It's easy for her to say that. Don't listen to Sarah. She's biased. She wants the inheritance for her son. His flesh was going to use that as a platform to afflict and persecute him. And so what God does is God uses that exact avenue to disclose this truth unto him. You know why? Because if we're going to, uh, if we're going to persecute our flesh, we're going to have to ignore our flesh. We're going to have to learn that. We're going to have to deal with that persistent yapping in our ear of our flesh saying, failure, failure, failure. You'll never do it. You'll never serve God. We're going to have to learn how to drown that out. You're saying, Abraham, this is the most unnatural thing in the world for you to do, to listen to Sarah here. But what you're trying to accomplish, Abraham, is the most unnatural thing for you to accomplish. The natural thing would be for you to listen to your flesh. Instead, you need to listen to the Spirit. We see that it was given to ignore his flesh. And then look at verse 13. It says this, And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation because he is thy seed. Now, after he has invoked him to trust, that's opposite of how we would do it. We would say, tell me why I should trust you and then I'll trust you. God says, trust me. And then when it's time, I'll tell you why you can trust me. And now he discloses that in fact Ishmael is going to be just fine. He's going to raise a nation up of Ishmael as well. You know what God was doing here? He was alleviating his fears. Can I tell you what happens? I, and I don't know, maybe just with me. You're more spiritual, so it may not happen with you. But with me, when I start to lean on the Lord, when I start to mortify the flesh, when I start to try to trust God, man, all this anxiety wells up in me. I'm thinking, I can't live without that sin. 
I can't live without this. I can't live without having my hands on the on, on the tiller. I, I, I can't I, I, I can't serve God without without having a hundred percent of the plan right up front. I mean, I, I can't. I, everything's going to go sideways if I don't have control of it. I'll tell you from hard learned experience in my life. Generally, when things go sideways, it's because I was ha- handling the wheel. It's generally because I did have control of it. But time and time and time and time again, I find it doesn't matter how many times that I see this lesson by experience. Every time that it's time to trust God, I always want to take the wheel back into my hands and have control of it instead. He tells him this, and, and it's funny to say, but he basically says this. Hey, listen, uh, Abraham, Ishmael's going to be all right without you, and you're going to be all right without him. Can I tell you, listen, there ain't no sin that's getting ready to fall off the books if you ain't committing it. There's nothing, I promise you, there's no sin out there to commit that you're the last person standing, and if you drop the ball, that sin will go extinct. But more to the point, can I say this? There's no sin in your life that you can't live without. Period. Full stop. In fact, every sin in your life is hindering you from living the life that God has for you in the first place. So when your flesh comes along and says, don't you know what's going to happen if you serve God? He's just trying to bully you. He don't have the other end of the answer. He can put all sorts of fears and anxieties in your mind. But can I tell you, only the Bible knows what the answer is. Only the Bible gives the answer. And you know what the answer is? If you just mess up, do something foolish and serve God, you'll be the happiest person to ever walk this earth. You alright? Something I just said confused you. Hold on, we'll, we'll back up here and re-preach that. If you serve the Lord, it ain't gonna hurt you. It's only gonna help you. I see that there is a direct conflict. There is a deep crisis. There was divine counsel. And finally, and I want you to notice it will be done. Look at verse 14. There is a definitive casting out of Ishmael. The Bible says in verse 14, Abraham rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water, gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. You know, undoubtedly, there is so much emotion packed into this short narrative verse. It's probably really hard to even to even communicate the, the, the deep sadness and anxiety and worry and torment that Abraham was going through. Again, we often imagine what that, uh, that, that agonizing march up Moriah's hill must have been like. But imagine this. Uh, when he was going up uh, Moriah's hill, Abraham believed he was coming back down with Isaac. But here as he marches Ishmael and Hagar out into the wilderness, He has the deep, firm conviction that he's never going to see his child again. In that, we find some important truths about what our perspective and approach needs to be in our life dealing with sin and the flesh. I would notice three things. Number one, I want you to notice is diligence. The Bible says Abraham rose up early in the morning. Isn't that interesting? Why did Abraham do that? Well, I think Abraham knew that the difficult task would be made no easier by waiting and procrastinating. He immediately got down to the business at hand. Wonder how many of your li- how much of your life and my life has been spent waiting to do something that should be done immediately. And I, I mean that in a spiritual sense. I wonder how much of our time, and you know how we do, God will stir our hearts and He might be doing it to your heart this morning. He's dealing with you about a sin in your life. Or maybe He's dealing with you about, about not, not a sin of commission, but of omission, of serving Him, of doing something. And, and, and your flesh is saying, well, that's good and everything, but let's just, let's get through the next couple months. Things are busy at work, and you're going to have time later on, and, and you got that vacation coming up, and uh, you got this surgery that's about to happen. Maybe you ought to wait for that. And, and listen, you're dealing with a bunch of things right now. You're, you're dealing with this. You're dealing with that. Why, why don't you just wait a little while, and then when the time is right, you'll serve. And I wonder how much of our time, our life has been spent in that waiting phase. I think if we were to be honest, there's things we could have been doing for God years ago if we just got up early in the morning and went and got it done. But instead we waited and we waited. We made excuses. We procrastinated. We found reasons why now was not the right time and it had to be later. And maybe I'll be better situated down the road. And there was always a reason. Really all that accomplished is keeping us from the task at hand. And I thought about this. I mean, this is a this is a band-aid moment, right? Rip the band-aid off all at once. Abraham looks at it and he says, if I wait, there's no way I'll do what God's commanded me to do. I'm going to have to get up when I'm still rubbing the sleep out of my eyes. I'm going to have to get up before the coffee's woke me up. I'm going to have to get up and I'm going to have to do it before I even really know what I'm doing because I need to do that to get the courage I need 
Can I tell you what? A, can I tell you what invitation time's all about? Uh, the Holy Ghost comes in and settles in the service and begins just working on your heart. And He starts to stir you and He starts to work in your heart and in your mind and He starts to take hold of your heart and twist it around and He starts to show things to you in your life that are wrong and that are sin and that God's dealing with you about. And then we have that moment at the service where we say with every head bowed, every eye closed, musician come to the piano. What is that? That's the moment to rise up early and go. While you still got that Holy Ghost sleep in your eyes. While God's dealing with you, the, the, the phrase we use in the modern world, strike while the iron is hot. There's a reason you don't ever seem to do any of that serious business at home, the lazy boy. Oh, I know, you do, I know, that's when you meet with God. But I'd say this, most of the time, if we ain't got enough about us to do business with God when He's dealing with us, we're probably not going to make an appointment with Him over the matter later. We see his diligence. He rose up early. He knew it wouldn't get any easier. So he just went and got it done. Then notice his preparation. The Bible says he took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child. Now, why did he do this? Well, he did this because he wanted to give them the best chance they would have of survival. But what would it suggest if he had walked out and, and just pushed them empty-handed out in the wilderness? Well, it would have suggested one of two things. One would have been that he didn't really love them. And I don't think that's true. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. He wouldn't have had this great angst had he not cared for them. So then it would have applied only one other thing. He expected them to come back. In other words, we see his diligence, but we see his preparation. He prepared to never see them again. Let me make this plain statement to you. You and I are both common sense enough to understand that there are times that we battle with sins over and over and over and over again in our life. I wish I could tell you that you'll come to an altar and give it to God, and, and, and that'll be it. You'll never be tempted again. You'll never struggle with it again. It'll be over and done. But I'll have to lie to you to tell you that. There's been a lot of things that I've given to God that I've found back in my hands again. But we will have no success in spiritual growth if when we come to God, we always have a plan introduce that sin back into our lives later. He sent them on their way and he gave them the best fighting chance. You know why? He wanted them to get far enough away that turning back would not be an option. And part of our problem is when we deal with sin, we keep the door open to let it back in just in case we decide we want to indulge in it later on. Here's how the Apostle Paul spoke of it in Galatians chapter number 5. He says, Brethren, you have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. In another place, Paul spoke about giving no place to the devil and no place, giving none occasion to the flesh. I'll tell you, the problem is we keep one foot in and one foot out, and then we wonder why we find ourselves swimming in the same mess that we just asked God to save us out of. Listen, the fact is we have to approach every time that we deliver that thing to the Lord, that we give it to God. I know, you know that we're frail flesh. We know our frames that were but us. But every time we have to approach it saying, God, I'm done with this. Lord, I have no intention of picking it back up. So, oh, but preacher, well, what if I do? Well, I'll tell you the one person that won't surprise is God. So go ahead and just commit to be done with it. You said, but preacher, I'll not break my promise. Oh, yeah, first one you've ever done it. First one you ever broke. Uh, it'd be better, hey, listen, to commit it to the Lord, even understanding in the frailty of our flesh that of course we are frail. Of course we are weak. Of course we are infirm. Of course there will be times that we double back on things we should not. But isn't that far better than coming and saying, now, Lord, I'm going to give this to you for a little while, but if we're being honest, I'm going to pick it right back up later anyway. I see his preparation, but then I notice his separation. The Bible says he sent her away and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Had Abraham been interacting with Ishmael on a daily basis, or even from time to time, he would certainly have taken him back into his home. So how do you know that, preacher? Because I'm a father. I, 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 I couldn't fathom. And some of you, you're, 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 you're parents for many long years beyond me, and to this day, if your child comes to you and says, hey, I, I need it, it don't matter. They're your baby, they're your child. Doesn't matter. That doesn't change. Imagine being called and committed to have to send this child away and, and, and never see them again. What would have happened if he had had Ishmael as a next-door neighbor? Wouldn't have been long. He'd have been saying, now, son, oh, there ain't no sense in you going back home. I mean, listen, we still got your old bedroom here. Why don't you just come up, lay down, and just go to sleep there? So, preacher, how do you know that? Because my mom and daddy still do it to me. I'm 30-something years old, and I live right across the hill from them every time I come over. You want to go upstairs and lay down and sleep? No? Wow. 
they're trying to lure me back to live back home. And I think the plan is they get me back home, they know Leah will follow. And then the kids don't drive, so they'll have to be there too. And then we'll just all be there. It'll, it'll be it'll be the Waltons going to bed going to bed at night. Not Leah. Not John Boy. Imagine how difficult it would have been for Abraham had he allowed Ishmael to continue to be a part of his life. There was only one way to get victory. And the surest way to get victory over sin is to separate yourself from it. Oh, I know. I know what the world says. The world says, oh, you can still hang around that crowd. You'll be a witness to them now. No, chances are they're going to drag you back into that old life he's living. Oh, but you don't understand, preacher. I mean, they, you know, I can still hang around this person and they were a part of my life when I was living that way. But I can still hang around them and I can still go to the bars that they uh, we used to go to. I can still, you know, we can sit around and listen to music. We, you don't understand. I'm being salt and I'm being light. No, what you're being is sand and dimness. Salt and light provides a stark contrast between the two. I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're going to get dragged into that same mess you used to be involved in. And if you think it won't happen to you, I challenge you to read this Bible and watch it happen to better men and women than you. It's going to happen to you just like it happened to anybody else. Preacher, how do I get victory? You have to separate from it completely. You know why? You're still trusting your flesh. You still think your flesh is strong enough to be involved in that mess and that it won't drag you back in. You're wrong. Your flesh is not strong enough, just like mine's not strong enough. Quit trusting your flesh. It has always failed you. And it'll fail you this time as well. So here's a question I have for you. Your Isaac's on the altar. I know it is because I preached on it two weeks ago and everybody does what I preach about. But is your Ishmael on the altar? Have you committed that thing to the Lord? Have you asked him? You say, oh, but preacher, I'm scared I'll fail. Yeah, you probably will. Probably a thousand times. But wouldn't it be better to start? than to just never, never, ever start? Wouldn't it be better to, to start? You'll fail. You'll mess up along the way. That's true. But that's the only way to success. Quitting, staying out of it, is not success. Preacher, I don't know if I could do it. Well, no, you can't, but the Lord can. And that's the whole point of it. As long as you're trusting in you, it's going to be the same thing, the same Groundhog's Day over and over again. But if you'll learn to quit trusting in you and trust in Him, God will give you victory. In your life. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. Altars open. Bring those things to the Lord and get help from the Lord this morning. Your burdens, your guilt, your shame, your failures, your faithlessness, your flesh, your sins. Bring them to the Lord. He's the only one that can do anything about them and with them. You've made a mess of it. You always will, just like I, I do, and I always will. But oh, listen, if we can put them in His hands. He'll do more with them than we ever could. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.